Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, An Update on Biomarkers in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer Clinical Management, is provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and supported by an educational grant from Merck Sharp and Dome, LLC, and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. So welcome to our next session, which is focusing on a topic that I'm interested in, particularly because of my practice, which is PARP inhibitors in prostate cancer, improving patient outcomes through precision therapy. And we have a very experienced speaker today, Frank Delarama, who works now as a CNS and a clinical nurse specialist with oncology genomics and Palo Alto Medical Foundation and Suter Health in Palo Alto, California. And I think he will bring a lot to this discussion today. Welcome, Frank. And here are his disclosures. And I'll just remind you of the session learning objectives, which is to review the mechanism of action and clinical rationale for the use of PARP inhibitors in metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, apply recommended strategies to ameliorate AEs associated with PARP inhibitors, and to develop individualized treatment strategies for the use of PARP inhibitors in patients with MCRC based on molecular testing, guideline recommendations, and clinical trial evidence. So now, please let me welcome uh, Frank Delrama. Frank, it's all yours. I'm a prostate cancer navigator by training, and so I've been working with prostate cancer for over 20 years. But I also do genetics and genomics since I got my master's in that. So my practice is half cancer navigation and half uh, genetic uh, testing and counseling. And, you know, happy to be here again today. Today, we're looking at the PARPs, which are a new tool that we use in advanced prostate cancer. We're going to start with a little bit about that. You know, advanced prostate cancer is uh, the most frequently diagnosed uh, cancer, second leading cause of cancer death uh, among U.S. men, first being lung. Unfortunately, the median overall survival, as you can see there, uh, bone is about 21 months, lung uh, a little over 19, liver uh, 13 months. We don't like to see that, but definitely if you came, if you saw those numbers in 2004 or earlier, we didn't have a lot of these tools that we have today. And so it's really encouraging that we can kind of help men with first, second, and third line therapies when it comes to metastatic castrate resistant uh, prostate cancer. We don't really understand why these treatments stop working. Usually, with metastatic or biochemical recurrence, we'll start people on uh, ADT, you know, hormone deprivation therapy, and we'll keep giving it until it doesn't work. And so uh, often once a cancer becomes castrate resistant, you know, uh, we already tried ADT. Uh, we, we think that the androgen receptor probably has something to do with driving these cancers, even though this testosterone is uh, basically castrate. Uh, so there's a lot of different pathways that are involved. Uh, these days. And another thing I, I know I'm here in the Silicon Valley, I got a lot of engineer patients, you know, they'll look up these papers with median survival. You know, median survival just means, I'll explain to them that, uh, you know, 50% of the men at 21.3 months with bone nets uh, are still surviving. It doesn't mean that if you multiply that times two, that doesn't mean we double that and try to figure out, you know, are they all going to be gone at 42 months? And so it could be longer, it'd be shorter. I'll kind of point those out on some survival curves. Uh, later today. But for just kind of key terms in prostate cancer, if you don't work with it every day, definitely biochemical recurrence, you know, the, the measure of success after surgery or radiation for a localized uh, treatment is uh, measuring the PSA. We want it to be steady, either undetectable after surgery, or we want it to be lower and not go up 
after radiation, but if it starts to rise, we need to do something else. That's what biochemical recurrence is. HSPC is hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, so cancer that's still responsive to ADT and those type of medications. Uh, CRPC is castrate-resistant prostate cancer. You know, that we're going to focus on that uh, quite a bit. So cancer that has become too smart and, uh, you know, it's kind of growing beyond the, the uh, hormonal treatments. Uh, High-volume metastatic prostate cancer, you see the uh, criteria there. High-risk prostate cancer, you know, uh, high-risk features are Gleason score of eight or higher or more bone mets. You know, we can really, we can actually have cancers that are either or or both, you know, high volume and high risk. Uh, once in a while, we will find de novo out of the blue metastatic cancer upon presentation. So this is what normally happens in prostate cancer in the blue box. You know, best case scenario, we catch these cancers very early. It's localized. We give it definitive therapy, either with surgery, radiation, and hopefully we stay there. If the PSA starts to rise, you know, that's biochemical recurrence. And we're kind of back in there looking at what needs to be done. If the scans show no kind of frank metastasis, then we're going to go up to the gray box there, you know, uh, metastatic hormone uh, sensitive prostate cancer. So we're going to give that some hormones and hopefully we'll keep giving that until uh, it doesn't work anymore. If the PSA is rising and uh, let's say we start some hormone therapy and we go, we still don't see anything on imaging, but uh, the prostate uh, cancer seems to uh, be resistant to the to the hormone therapy. That's still non-metastatic, castrate-resistant prostate cancer there in the green. Now, once these cancers progress one step further, you know, rising PSAs despite, you know, ADT, if we have metastasis, that's where we're in this category that we're talking about today, metastatic, castrate-resistant uh, prostate cancer. Today, we're talking about PARP. So why talk about PARP? You know, PARP is an enzyme, basically, that helps DNA repair. The reason we want to use something like a PARP inhibitor is that we want to uh, encourage these cancer cells to die. And so what you see here uh, on the screen in the left, left corner, there are just these uh, risk factors related to how does how is DNA damage caused? Is it just environmental? Could be UV, could be radiation. Is it just normal physiology? You know, in the process of cell division, there's mistakes that can happen. You know, chemotherapy and radiotherapy can cause these type of mistakes in the cells. And so, for example, with single-strand breaks, let's say a cell has one of those, the cell will, you know, recruit PARP as a protein to help repair that. If there's double-strand breaks, you know, uh, BRCA1 and 2, are the genes that make those proteins that help repair those types of breaks by homologous uh, recombination, et cetera. And the PARP is also key in, you know, fixing replication lesions or these other types of DNA damage. And so really in our own cells, we all have PARP every day, but the normal cells, we want these PARP proteins, we want these BRCA proteins to work because it's going to keep the cells intact. Uh, what we're doing with PARP inhibitors, we're giving that we're stopping the mechanics in the uh, prostate cancer cells. So hopefully that will lead to a lot more cell death when it comes to uh, prostate cancer cells. And now genetic testing, you know, uh, genetic testing, why are we talking about this? You know, perhaps we're going to reveal a genetic or genomic finding that'll allow us to, you know, use PARP inhibitors, one of the criteria behind it. So again, when I was meeting prostate cancer patients in the early 2000s, we didn't really talk much about genetics. Uh, but today, 
you know, a lot of prostate cancer patients were curious about their germline or the genetic status of BRCA1, 2, or all these other genes. Uh, we're curious about, you know, if we have some tissue from a metastatic uh, prostate cancer, can we do a genetic analysis of that to kind of find out what's going on? So really, you know, in uh, genetics, BRCA1 and 2 and other kind of these type of germline mutations are associated with increased risk for prostate cancer. About 11.8% of men there in the yellow, in the orange box will have, will possibly have a germline mutation. So now today's criteria for BRCA testing for prostate cancer have, have met that. So we're testing quite a few people, uh, if not all of the metastatic and advanced prostate, prostate cancer uh, cases. Uh, somatic mutations are mutations not so much in the germline, but in the tissue. We find it in the tissue. Maybe it's been there at, at birth. Maybe it's something that's developed over time. But uh, when it comes to metastatic prostate cancer, you know, almost 20%, they're going to have some type of clinically actionable mutation. So really the bottom line is, you know, definitely in men with metastatic prostate cancer or advanced cancer should be doing genetic testing either of the of the germline with a blood or saliva sample or and or the uh, tissue because we want to, you know, we, we could uncover other, you know, treatment possibilities for them. You know, I'll throw in as a side, even say, even in some of the localized cancers, if it's intermediate or high risk or if they have family history of breast, ovarian or pancreatic cancer, that kind of fits within the criteria of germline testing for BRCA1 and 2 in prostate cancer. One of the most common genes we find that is mutated in prostate cancer is a BRCA2. So if you were to look at, uh, even though there's plenty of these other genes that are related to metastatic prostate cancer, BRCA2 is one of the most, is one of the most frequently found mutations, you know, 5.3 in metastatic prostate cancers. Uh, you know, when that is there, we think the cancers are going to be a little bit more aggressive. You know, they're going to be genomically unstable. So the DNA is kind of a little bit more fragile, a little bit more unorganized. So those cells are a little bit more worrisome. Increased frequency of single nucleotide polymorphism. So that's something that's related to uh, the genomics of cancer with respect to the aggressiveness. If a man has a germline, it basically inherited cancer mutation, you know, there it's associated with a higher risk for prostate cancer. Again, you know, we usually see uh, either young cancers in people who have a germline test. Uh, we may not see it. We may see it with family history. So definitely germline mutations are going to be associated with, with some risk for, for prostate cancer patients. But germline mutations, they may have a chance of sharing that with our kids, with our brothers and sisters. So uh, if I were to pass that mutation on to my daughter, you know, we're not going to watch her for prostate cancer, of course, but it is related to the risk for breast Cancer. So BRCA2 is really another uh, thing that uh, pops up a lot uh, in uh, metastatic cancer. I think we'll uh, do a little case study here, Taryn, on the next. So this is Michael, a 63-year-old diagnosed with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer who presents with radiographic and symptomatic progression on enzalutamide. His prior therapy included docetaxel to progression and enzalutamide following the docetaxel. In his mutation analysis, we see somatic BRCA2 mutations. Okay. So PARP inhibitors, olaparib and rucaparib are kind of the main, you know, the ones we use day to day that have been that, that incorporated into the NCCN guidelines in metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. They are both PARP inhibitors. 
you'll notice here the difference between the two is Olaparib. We give it uh, for patients with a deleterious or suspected uh, germline or somatic HRR gene mutated. So that what that means is HRR genes, uh, homologous recombination repair genes, include BRCA1 and 2, but they include other genes such as ATM and a handful of other genes. So Olaparib is a little bit more broader in uh, where we can apply that based upon genetics. Uh, there is a genetic test that we would do prior, or let's say we find a uh, HRR mutation on a somatic test, then we'll, we'll, we may look into giving a Rucarabib is more specific to the BRCA1 and 2 only. So this, the, 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 it's only shown to improve survival in kind of BRCA1 and 2 specific. It is the same mechanism, but it's mainly given for, for those men who have a germline or somatic mutation in BRCA and just kind of a trick to remember which is which. I mean, if you do Google and look at what the uh, brand name of Rucaparib is, it literally just spells out R-U-B-R-A-C-A. So put a question mark at the end. So that's a good way to remember that. So Rucaparib, BRCA only, Olaparib, you know, we can use other HRR genes that we find. So we're going to kind of step into some clinical trials here. The phase three profound study, the question here was, does Olaparib improve outcomes? Does it improve uh, radiographic progression-free survival? So really, as compared to physician's choice, you know, back then. So this was that study kind of, is Olaparib going to be useful? So these are men with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer with disease progression, and they've had abiraterone or enzalutamide, and then they were tested, and they have some type of HRR gene. There's two cohorts here. So cohort A is uh, just BRCA1, BRCA2, or ATM. Cohort B is other HRR mutations, and they were both they were all randomized to Olaparib versus physician's choice. And then whenever you see these survival curves get split up in favor of the uh, uh, intervention arm, you know there's there's a little bit of benefit there. Uh, specifically in the cohort A or the BRCA1 and 2, that reduced the risk of death by 31%. That reduced the risk of imaging-based progression or death by 66%. So we don't see a lot of mets on imaging at that point. So not a big overall benefit in cohort B, but still something uh, Olapro we can use in those men that have HRR uh, type uh, mutation. The next trial is the Triton 3. So it's kind of the same question, you know, is Rucaparib going to improve us survival, image-based survival? So RPFS, again, this study is with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer who've had disease progression. Uh, They've had an AR inhibitor, and they do have a mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2 or ATM. So they're randomized to either get Rucaparib or to get kind of the physician's choice of Docetaxel, abiraterone, and enzalutamide. And again, we see the separation of the curves. You know, there seemed to be a significantly reduced risk of progression and death uh, in the whole intent to treat population, uh, a reduction by 39%. If you just look at the BRCA group, you know, even more favorable, looks like a 50% uh, reduction in progression or death there. That curve is, this is one of those things where it's kind of interesting to look at a curve. So Rucaparib, the median survival is 10.2 months. And so you look at the graph at 10 months, and then you look at the graph at 20 months, there's still quite a few people living, 30, 39, 42, 45. So there's still uh, people, you know, living well beyond double 
the OS. And so that's something that uh, hopefully can be encouraging to patients that you see uh, your engineer patients. So how do we give it? I mean, basically it's oral. Dosing is a little bit different between olaparib and ricaparib, as you can see on the slide. If we need to reduce the dose, for some reason, there's some guidelines there for those of you who prescribe that day-to-day. Uh, -day. The difference is, again, with uh, what to look out for. With Olaparib, if there's a moderate renal impairment, perhaps we'll dose reduce there a little bit based upon their labs. Uh, we want to make sure they're not on strong to moderate uh, SIP inhibitors because that's going to mess around with the uh, the level of uh, their drug in the system, you know, including grapefruit juice, erythromycin, you know, verapamil. You know, so work with your pharmacist or your NP to kind of, you know, make sure there's no drug-drug interactions. But those are kind of the differences between the two. And you can try to select those for your patients. Or if you're not selecting it for your patients, kind of know what to look out for. So what are the common adverse events? Again, they're pretty similar across. So I just kind of point out the differences. I mean, they're both related to fatigue. GI and anemia, thrombocytopenia, blood cells. I mean, the other term you're going to see come up is cytopenia. So it kind of captures all that. We're worried about low blood counts in general when it comes to these type of medications. With, uh, with Olaparib, there's a little bit more assessment that we're worried about a little bit of cough and a little bit of dyspnea. So do some good lung assessments for sure. On this side, there is some rare side effects with Olaparib, you know, uh, thrombotic events. So those are the things we'll monitor for. When it comes to recaparib, the things that stand out here are the, you know, watching the liver enzymes and possible rash. And so there's overall the main AEs kind of grouped are fatigue, GI, and uh, cytopenias. Uh, but there's some subtle differences between the two that we'll keep an eye on depending upon uh, what your patient is taking. So kind of an overview of all these AE uh, adverse events with PARP inhibitors you know, what do we suggest for management with fatigue? Of course, you know, we tell our patients don't just lie at home. Uh, definitely exercise uh, is going to be a good thing to help combat the fatigue. There's other things that we would suggest, massage, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, looking at the blood counts as well. Maybe it's related to anemia. There are GI toxicity AEs. And so we're going to work with uh, getting some prophylactic antiemetics in there if they need some Rapamide for di diarrhea, that's something that uh, we can kind of keep an eye out. And definitely watching the blood counts. You know, cytopenia is kind of what that is. Anemia, thrombocytopenia, neutropenia. And so we want to look at the blood counts for sure. The other things on the radar are definitely uh, creatinine, you know, renal function, liver enzymes, and some uh, rarities down the list there. So really, a take-home is that with these apartment inhibitors, the top three, fatigue, GI, and cytopenias are going to be what we're going to be looking out for. Uh, if we want to dig into uh, GI toxicity a little bit more, you know, quality of life is why we're doing all this. And so uh, if we can help them avoid any kind of impact on their quality of life, even mild nausea and vomiting, we want to address that. We want to make sure they take their antiemetics, you know, half an hour to an hour prior to each PARP inhibitor dose. Uh, it may happen twice daily. Avoid a prepotent. You know, a prepotent is one of those interactions related to CIPA384. And so that's something we want to avoid uh, when it comes to uh, PARP inhibitors, taking in after meals, you know, food diary, all good things to remember. You know, for sure, if they vomit after taking that PARP inhibitor, do not take an additional dose. So we're just kind of watching them uh, pretty closely. And um, we'll go into a little case study here, Taryn. I'll throw it back to you. So here's Michael. Our case continues. 
He started a lap rib 300 PO twice daily four weeks ago. He now reports fatigue, dizziness, withstanding, shortness of breath, and a headache. He's diagnosed with grade three anemia. Perfect. Yeah. It looks like most of you already know. Coming in here again, the toxicity chart is here. Like I said earlier, the top three, you know, the top of the list here is anemia. So part of that cytopenia group, we're definitely looking at that in our patients who are on PARP inhibitors, nausea, as you can see a second, fatigue or asthenia, either being tired or not wanting, uh, feeling weak is kind of the top three when it comes there. So when it comes to the anemia that we're talking about in the case study, as you recall, his hemoglobin went from 9.4 down to 6.8. So he does have a less than 8.0 or grade three anemia is kind of what he's dealing with there. And uh, the guideline there for anemia management is we'll definitely hold the PARP inhibitor as 60% of you guys already knew for grade three. We may consider it for grade two, but we will kind of plan to transfuse some packed red blood cells. We'll wait for that uh, hemoglobin to get, improve, uh, get let the symptoms resolve, and then we'll restart it at a reduced dose. And here below here are some guidelines on what the what the next you know the reduced dose is going to be. And so uh, keeping an eye on the blood counts is going to be key. So let's go over some other things to consider. Definitely when our, our patients are on PARP, you know, a lot of times even with my patients on ADD, how long am I going to be on this? You know, basically, we're going to keep giving it until it the, the disease progresses, it becomes too smart, goes beyond that type of treatment, or if the toxicity is unacceptable as well. Most of the time, our patients who are getting PARP inhibitors for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer are receiving, a uh, at the same time, a GNRH inhibitor or have gone some depth of hormone deprivation uh, intervention. Even though we talked about anemia, transfusions for thrombocytopenia are pretty rare. But if you're, if their patient's platelets are below uh, 10,000, you know, maybe that's something we'll be considering. Now, outside of the top three, you know, fatigue, GI, and anemias and cytopenias, other things to look out for. I mean, if we're all doing a good nursing assessment or uh, a full kind of clinical assessment, we're always going to do the head to toe, but headache, insomnia, dizziness, cough, especially in elaborate. You know, skin reactions, more with your caparib. And so we're basically going to keep a close eye on these patients. We're probably already watching them pretty closely, but uh, it's important to kind of watch them. And when it comes to the skin reactions, you know, we're going to counsel them. You know, we want to give the power to our patients to take care of themselves and give them all the tools they need, but definitely tell them to use sunscreen, you know, stay out of the sun as much as they can, use moisturizers because it can make the skin dry sometimes. If we have some rashes, uh, which can come up with the rucaparib, you know, hydrocortisone, uh, topical is going to be a good thing to have. I mean, if they have to have hand foot syndrome, maybe that's going to be helpful as well. So really, I think the best thing to do with our patients is because we've been through this, you know, possibly hundreds of times or we know our colleagues, you know, or our doctors are going to help these patients through. I think that patients and caregivers benefit most from kind of knowing a heads up as a navigator. In my day-to-day -day practice, I want to give them a heads up, you know, what to look out for, if I need to teach that again and again and again. So these are the things, you know, what, especially if they're PARP inhibitors, you kind of help them, uh, you know, manage expectations. You know, we want them to be on the lookout for these side effects. We don't want them to be too scared of it, but at least they know if there's any changes in their level of energy, if there's any changes in how they feel, 
you know, my, my stomach feels kind of weird after, you know, let, let us know. And so at least they have the power to, uh, all these patients are basically outpatient, right? So it's not like they're here uh, ready for us to assess in front of us all the time. You know, when to contact us, you know, definitely provide, if you're not the navigator, if you're not the one prescribing the medication and you happen to see this patient in another part of the clinic, at least you know who to contact if you think it might be related to their PARP inhibitors. Now, there are plenty of things that we can do as uh, in the previous slide, you know, we can try to prevent or reduce the side effects of fatigue and nausea with some of these uh, uh, pre-medications or other interventions. At home, taking pills, again, we're, we're trying to promote adherence and educating them to kind of, you know, handle these medications versus when we're given chemo, we know exactly when to give it and how much we want to teach our patients to have that, uh, that power within themselves to do that. And clinical trials are always something that, uh, and we're going to go over some a little bit later. So believe it or not, maybe your patient will be eligible for a clinical trial. So they'll have access to some of these newer medications out here on the horizon. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on for our patients. You know, in day-to-day -day practice, some patients are good about sharing their symptoms, sharing what they, their concerns, or you have uh, some type of electronic messaging portal. You know, that those are great ways to kind of get information. Some patients are less likely to tell everything. They don't want to disappoint our doctor or the nurse. You know, they want to tell them to encourage them to share the share how they're feeling. Definitely symptom questionnaires can be helpful in this case. I know at our clinic, we have some questionnaires specific to some of these things so we can kind of administer that either in person or have the nurse go over it with them in the clinic or even maybe electronically. It's a team effort. So metastatic prostate cancer, definitely you may identify you know, in your assessment of their uh, physical being, you know, they may need help with emotional or mental health. And so definitely your your social worker, your definitely palliative care is a wonderful resource that hopefully these metastatic prostate cancer patients already are connected with. And there's plenty of support groups, either in person or virtual, that I think are helpful because it's kind of nice to see, you know, someone else, going to hear from someone else who's going through the same thing. And so that the first person perspective is always going to be helpful. You know, again, uh, any type of clergy or religious that kind of support. So just treating the whole patient, you know, spiritual, uh, emotional, et cetera. When it comes to these treatments affecting hormone levels, you know, sexual dysfunction is something that if I, in my world, they're a little bit more open to kind of sharing that information. You know, definitely ADT and some of these effects on the hormones, you know, are going to are going to affect sexual function or libido. You know, it's important to point out that the loss of libido and erectile dysfunction are are uh, are common, unfortunately, with these uh, with this cancer and with these medications. But they're one doesn't fix the other. So uh, you know, you can't give an ED drug to affect uh, the fix of or fix the loss of libido. So if you do have people who need specific help related to this, you know, urology could be a start. If you have a, a specialist in sexual health, uh, that could be useful in your facility. Again, when it comes to the patient experience and they they feel weak, they feel like they've, uh, or they feel like they've lost some muscle tone, there's some body changes. Again, we don't want them just to lay around. We want fatigue, uh, exercise is the best intervention when it comes to combating fatigue. If you have physical therapy, sources nearby uh, that's going to be very helpful for especially some of your older patients i know locally here we have a live strong live well so cancer patients have access to the ymca and a, and a specific uh, exercise program 
So again, giving the power to the patient, managing their nutrition, managing their exercise, they're going to feel less helpless in the middle of all this. So they feel like as if they're contributing to fighting this cancer, for sure. And as we meant, just uh, especially in metastatic prostate cancer, we hope to prevent the bone-related events. So you you may be having this patient on the, the nasumab or zoledronic acid. You know, if there's some bone metastasis, you know, hopefully they'll be compliant with uh, these uh, medications and the, the team. But yeah, again, it's about communication. So we want to have open lines of communications between the patient, the caregiver, and the advanced practice provider. And, you know, you're working closely with the oncology team, all of you who are involved. I don't care what type of cancer you're working in. It's a team effort. So including the nurse and patient navigators as well. So if we can have those frank discussions about what to expect, hopefully you don't get all these side effects, but at least they kind of know what to keep an eye on just in case. Now, the next on the horizon ARP inhibitors are now something we're beginning to use in metastatic cancer. And, you know, maybe it's coming up to where it's first line, second line. And so what you're going to see on these next few slides are some of the clinical trials related to what kind of combinations of, uh, of therapies can we give? Is that going to help? The first one here, Propel, is a trial uh, phase, phase three. So we're looking at first line. Uh, it, what happens if we add a lap rib to abiraterone pregnancy? So the question here is, you know, these are first-line metastatic patients. They haven't had any prior treatments for metastatic cancer. They could have, you know, docetaxel. Maybe they have AT, they have had ADT. They should not have had a, a prior abiraterone and be in relatively good uh, shape. There was no screening for the HRR mutations required. But then in this study, they did kind of collect that, and we kind of split that. They were randomized to two groups, either just placebo with abiraterone or elaborate with abiraterone. And at the end point, you know, we really want to see how it's going to be affecting radiographic progression-free survival. So again, when the curves split up, you know, we're seeing some benefit of adding elaborate here, the median Overall survivor is improved. As you can see, the blue line is creeping up. And then when we drill down to those cancers that have a mutation in one of those HRR uh, genes, we see some, uh, you know, benefit there. So the, as a result of this study, perhaps first line olaparib with abiraterone is going to be helpful in these patients in uh, prolonging their uh, radiographic uh, progression-free survival. So the next trial here, same question. Now we're looking at neuropolis. So it's another PARP inhibitor that's on the, on the radar. Again, it's pretty similar. You know, these are patients who have metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. They haven't had any prior treatment for, no prior systemic treatment for this type of cancer, no prior PARP inhibitor. Uh, if they've had a, uh, abiraterone prior, they allow that in the study for four months, which basically gave the opportunity for those men to kind of get the biomarker testing. Because the, the groups that they, we split them up into or that the study did is those with HRR mutations, the top gray square versus those without. And then those cohorts were further randomized to receive araparib plus abiraterone or placebo plus abiraterone. Again, the endpoint here is we want to see, is it going to affect their radiographic progression through survival? Um, we'll go to the survival curve here. So again, 
the curves start to separate. So there appears to be some benefit. The left-hand side is, you know, all HRR mutations. That's at the cohort. So there's a little bit of an improvement. Uh, median survival goes from 13 up to 16.5 months when it comes to radiographic events. There's a little bit more benefit there when just we just look at the BRCA1 and 2 patients. And so what's going on now is that's currently under review. Maybe that's going to be something that's going to be helpful specifically for BRCA1 and 2 patients uh, personally. So yet another IB. And so this research question here is, you know, the first one was Aleparib, Nureparib, Talazoparib is this other one here. So the question here is, again, what if we add uh, talazoparib to enzalutamide? You know, again, these are patients with no prior treatment. So this is first-line therapy for metastatic castrate-resistant, in this case, or non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. And then they were uh, assessed for their HRR gene status. They were randomized, again, to receiving talazoparib plus enzalutamide or placebo plus enzalutamide, and we're looking at radio as a primary endpoint, radiographic progression-free survival. And you can see here, again, the separation of the curves, which seems to show some benefit to, in the left-hand graph, the green is the uh, enzalutamide plus telazoparide. And uh, you'll see the median progression-free survival radiographically is improved on the right is those that didn't have any HRR mutations. So the take-home message here in the clinical trial world is uh, first-line enzalutamide plus talazoparib improved radiographic progression-free survival regardless of HRR status. So look out there. Hopefully the FDA will prove that. That'll you know capture a little bit more patients given, again, uh, talazoparib plus enzalutamide and might be able to be used regardless of HRR status. And yet another kind of looking at another combination uh, instead of previous slide telazoparib, we're looking here now at rucaparib. So what's going to happen if we can give enzalutamide plus rucaparib first line for patients that have no prior treatment for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer? Again, they are going to be randomized to either having rucaparib or not in addition to enzalutamide and looking at radiographic uh, progression-free survival again. So really, that's a trial that's ongoing. As you can see, these combinations seem to be on the horizon. Neraparib and rucaparib, meaning more related to just BRCA, olaparib and talazoparib, you know, regardless of HRR, you know, that would be something to use. But then in the clinical practice, like in our case studies, it's a lot of and recaparib. So a lot of IBS, but a lot of a lot of a lot more combinations. So these are really more more options that are going to be more and more available to our patients in the toolbox for dealing with uh, metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancers. So what do we want to do now? Uh, definitely learning all this today. You know, what do we do for our patients who we happen to encounter with metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer? You now know germline and somatic mutation or blood, saliva, and tissue testing for these mutations is going to be important for all patients with metastatic prostate cancer. So basically, that's the question. Did you get genetic counseling and germline testing, or did they test your tissue? Which PARP inhibitors are, have FDA-approved indications, like olaparib and rucaparib, and the differences between their indications, and the top three Adverse events we're looking out for in the, as a nurse or as a provider, 
fatigue GI side of the PAs are kind of what we're looking at here. And then, you know, we can't, we may need to implement the dose modifications. So that's kind of our action plan as a clinician. Could you clarify or define the younger prostate cancer diagnosis? What ages are we talking about in younger diagnosis? And right. that's the survival rate decrease that you talked about. Yeah, yeah. So definitely younger, you know, I would say the median age of prostate cancer is probably somewhere around 65. There's not a like a concrete NCCN guideline. We know early breast cancer is 50, uh, but I would say anything under 65 is probably, uh, you know, what we would call younger, you know, uh, younger than average is kind of what that is. And but if we do get the opportunity, again, the question, the slide there, I think was originally, if you see a younger prostate cancer patient, you know, maybe ask those questions about family history you know, perhaps we can pursue some type of somatic testing. And so if we do gather the germline or the somatic information, you know, if we do identify, we're more likely to identify BRCA2 or other kind of HR mutations in the younger types of prostate cancer. That's probably where that kind of comes up there. Yeah. But I would say younger is, you know, less than 65. Can we do somatic testing on the initial biopsy prostate tissue if it was done years ago? Yeah, so that's kind of a dilemma. Uh, you know, definitely it depends upon the lab you're working with, how, you know, I've seen some somatic tissue done year, year or year two afterwards. If it's been quite a while, the question is maybe if we have a metastatic site to get a biopsy or there's some, uh, you know, circulating tumor cell type of testing where we can get somatic information from a blood test. And so, of course, the first option would be try to pursue, you know, the tissue from the biopsy. You know, that cancer could have changed between the biopsy and whatever you're dealing with now. So if the patient doesn't need another a biopsy of the metastatic region, maybe consider the, you know, the circulating tum tumor cell blood test, a way of getting a that somatic same type of testing done. She's seen many patients who've been treated with prostate cancer probably post-prostatectomy or treated with either radiation or chemotherapy. Do you know why one would do better than the other or which is choose one? How do you choose one over the other? Yeah, I think uh, most of us see these patients, you know, uh, localized. So intermediate risk or low risk, you know, offensive surgery or radiation, high risk, you know, we're high in a uh, higher intermediate to risk. We're giving uh, hormones plus radiation, sometimes adding docetaxel. You know, we, uh, I think, uh, Taryn, we're probably on the same page. You know, we usually do chemo for the higher risk patients. There's probably not, I mean, we're really trying to treat the cancers and seeing what the outcome is. So there are some somatic testing that kind of give us an eye how effective certain chemotherapies would be. But I think, you know, leading up to the higher risk localized, we're, be, we're using chemotherapy. I'm not sure if one works uh, better than the other. When we get into the very risk, very high risk category, a lot of times we're using radiation plus hormones plus chemotherapy. So I think uh, based upon risk stratification, we're going to throw everything at it that we can, uh, keeping in mind that the uh, that the patient can tolerate it. So we don't want to, you know, the goal there is not to overtreat to where the side effects are uh, irreparable. And so I'm not sure if one is better than the other, but a chemo is only appropriate for certain patients in the spectrum. Thanks. And I also, I'll just add to that, that sometimes if a patient has recurrence and their cancer, so they have a solitary bone mat, for example, radiation for the treatment of pain at that bone mat might be effective, but ultimately either chemo in the high risk group or appropriate further adjuvant treatment is really where you're going. 
uh, radiation is not appropriate for oligo, uh, for multiple metastatic sites, but perhaps for an oligometastatic site post-treatment, uh, we might see that. Do you use the PSMA scan to look for metastatic disease in your patient population? Yeah, it's a newer technology that is more readily available now. We do use PSMA. PSMA is a prostate-specific membrane antigen. So when we do a PSMA scan opposed to a standard CT PET, the images are a lot clearer. The areas that light up are specific to the prostate or the PSMA antigen on the on the prostate cancer cells. So we do use that, you know, for the higher risk patients to evaluate if there's METs there. And then we do use it for those metastatic patients who we want to evaluate how it changes over time. The main barrier is sometimes insurance still. Unfortunately, it's relatively expensive, but some plans are covering it. But a lot of times we will do our best to get things covered because it's a great tool. You know, when you see those images, they're a lot uh, more precise and, you know, kind of speaking to like the next generation of uh, if we can know where the, if we can target the PSMA a membrane antigen on a diagnostic, the next question is going to be, can we have some targeted therapy? So there are some things around the bend where they can, uh, you know, attach a medication and infuse it. And so PSMA kind of helps the medication go directly to the tumor. So I would say today we're, we're hope we, we do strive to use PSMA as best, as best we can, but, uh, you know, cost is sometimes an issue. I don't know if that, if that comes up in your clinic as well, Terry. What do you think to be is the biggest barrier to patients getting genetic testing in your experience? You know, sometimes it's just not knowing, you know, even providers who deal with it or even, uh, you know, the way we have it set up here in my facilities, we've trained even primary care to kind of keep an eye out for, you know, if they have family history or personal history of breast, prostate whatever cancer. So uh, it's it's key to have a genetics professional in who's accessible. It used to be a lot of doctors and providers would order this uh, independently, and that's uh, that's another uh, workload. And so uh, awareness with providers to let them know who is your local genetics professional. I'm a navigator. So I refer to myself for <laughs> genetic testing, but if you're a nurse navigator, know who your genetic counselor is. If you're a patient or if you're, you know, uh, uh, counseling a patient, inform them to ask those questions because some doctors may be less likely to bring it up uh, versus not because they're covering so many other things. So I think it's knowledge is probably the barrier, but the, 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 the reality is most of the time it's available and covered by insurance and it's information that's going to be helpful for the patient and his treatment and potentially, you know, future generations, uh, for prevention of other cancers as well. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I want to thank you, Frank, uh, for a great presentation today. I've learned a lot about PARP inhibitors, and I know the audience joins me in thanking you for this great uh, talk today. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and supported by an educational grant from Merck Sharp and Dome, LLC, and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.